In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear saints, while John is in prison for calling Herod to repentance, awaiting his own death and languishing, our dear brother John is plagued by doubt. And so he sends two disciples to Jesus to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Are you the Christ? The one we have been waiting for, or should we look for another? And Jesus sends those disciples back to John to say all of the works and words that Jesus taught, and then to say specifically this to John. Blessed is the man who is not offended by me. To be offended the way that the Lord uses the word here means something different than the way we use that word today. Nowadays, to be offended, you could be offended at pretty much anything. It simply means you just don't like it or just something you don't agree with. It's a feeling of disrespect or disagreement. And the way the world uses this word, for example, goes something like this. You quote the Bible or you state your opinion and you say, well, this is what the Bible says. And someone says, well, I'm offended. And then the conversation's over. But the Greek word that Jesus uses here is actually more serious than that. The word that Jesus uses here in the Greek is skandalizo, which is where we get the word scandalize. In essence, Jesus is saying this, blessed is the one who is not scandalized because of me. So to scandalize someone means to cause them to trip and stumble and fall. Here, here's a picture so you kind of uh, understand that and, and have an image in your mind. Uh, picture a man running a marathon that he's trained for, he's prepared for, he's labored all his life to get to this point, to get to that finish line. He's getting to the 26th mile and has, what, 0.2 miles left. He's ready to finish the race once and for all, but then someone at the very last moment throws a chair out in front of him, he trips on it, he falls, and then he can't finish the race. That's what it means to scandalize, right? It's something that takes you out of the race altogether. And so Jesus uses this word when he talks about those who cause one of these little ones to stumble in Matthew chapter 18. It's the same word. To scandalize someone means to knock them out of the race, out of the faith, uh, to fall into apostasy, to fall into complete unbelief because of something you did or something you said. You're causing someone to leave the church, to leave the faith, to no longer believe. You put their salvation in jeopardy. So you get the idea here. This is what Jesus is talking about. It is a very serious thing. He's talking about losing faith in him altogether. But here's the part that's not adding up. 
It's true that people do things to each other that cause them to stumble and fall. I get that. And, and it's most shameful when we see this in our own church, in our own family, when we see people uh, demean and belittle or scoff and mock others in their own church or family. We see people sin against others and cause them to leave the church altogether because of bad behavior or wicked words. But to me, that's not really that surprising, oddly enough. I, I get that. We've seen it plenty of times before. We pray that God keeps us from this. We pray that he preserves us from scandal. And we pray that God forbid that you or I or anyone ever causes someone to stumble in this way. But the thing that is so odd about Jesus' words here today is that he says, Blessed is the one who is not scandalized on account of me. On account of Jesus, on account of the Lord, our God. How could this be? How is it that someone could be scandalized, could stumble and fall into unbelief on account of Jesus, who is trying to save us? What is Jesus doing that could possibly offend anyone? Yes, Jesus has said some harsh truths in the Gospels. And in reality, I would expect Jesus to be talking about people being scandalized by him when he, t when he brings out the seven woes against the Pharisees and he speaks very harsh words of judgment there. Or when he overturns the tables in the temple and, and uh, uh, scatters everybody out of there. But... So you would expect him to, to say, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me in this context. But the context here, the immediate context of Jesus' words say nothing of that nature. In fact, he talks about giving blind people their sight back, making paralyzed people walk, healing the lepers, making the deaf hear, raising people from the dead and preaching good news, the gospel to the poor. So how in the world can this, these works, cause somebody to stumble and fall out of the faith? How is this offensive? I think, in fact, I think everybody in the world would look at this text and say, look, there's nothing wrong with this. This is clearly what we all want. We want our sight back. We want to hear again. We want to walk again. We want our loved ones back. That's what we long to see ourselves, our, our bodies finally healed from all of this sickness. So how could it be that any of these words or actions from Jesus could cause someone to be scandalized? Well, who was at risk of being offended in this way? Obviously, it was John the Baptist, and that's who John is, uh, Jesus is talking to. Send word to John, he says. So John, lonely in the darkness in prison, is struggling with something... For something, uh, John, uh, something for John is not adding up or making sense. John has an idea about Jesus that Jesus is not measuring up to. And so he asks, am I really supposed to be waiting for you? John is the one who is at risk of being offended or being scandalized. And what's he so frustrated about that he's on the verge of losing faith? Now, a common reason people are frustrated with Jesus is that he speaks uh, difficult words and demands things or preaches the law. But I don't think that's what John is offended at here. I mean, John is in prison for preaching the law against Herod's sexual sin. So let me suggest to you this. 
that what might have caused John the trouble here today is not any of this altogether, but something else. I think the problem was this. John cannot understand or even wrap his mind around the amount of patience that the Lord Jesus will demonstrate for people in their sins. This is what the Pharisees struggled with. It's what they couldn't stand Jesus for. They couldn't understand how Jesus could preach the law in its full sternness and parse out every law in its detail and say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then at the same time, go and eat at the home of sinners and, uh, and tax collectors and prostitutes. It was inconceivable how Jesus could give sinners a chance and then another chance and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one after that. It was unthinkable that Jesus would call Matthew a sinner, a tax collector, to come follow him. They were offended by the idea that Jesus is so persistent in his love for sinners. And this is the trouble for John, and this is the trouble for you and for me too. The thing that Jesus does that can cause us to stumble and be scandalized by him is his graciousness. I know it seems kind of crazy to talk this way, to say that Christians can fall away from the faith because Jesus is so loving and kind, but it's true. And here is where it begins to scandalize us. Jesus is gracious to sinners, to all sinners, and even to the sinners who sin against you. It's true. Jesus loves you. But he doesn't only love you. He loves your enemies too. He loves the world. And this means he loves the people who sin against you. The ones who persecute you who mock you, who make your life worse. He loves them. He loves them when their bodies are hurting. He still takes care of them. He gives them clothing and shoes and food and drink and house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and every single thing that they have. And many times he may bless them more than he blesses you with temporal goods. You know those people you can't even stand to think about. The people who have made you weep and mourn. The people who stripped you of good things in this life. Jesus loves them. He is not afraid to call a sin a sin, and he does, but while he does, he is patient and he is kind and God is gracious and merciful and kind to them, not because they merit or, or are worthy of it, but because of his fatherly divine goodness and mercy. He makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust and it rains upon the just and the unjust. And that, dear saints, the patient long-suffering love that God has for sinners, the persistence with which he seeks after them and desires their salvation, this is what can cause us to stumble. His abounding love is exactly what's such a hard concept for us to grasp. It's a tough pill to swallow. Look at it. John, 
the preacher of God's word, the greatest man born of a woman, is in prison. And Herod isn't. And the Lord loved Herod so much. He desired his salvation, his eternal life. Jesus came to suffer and die even for Herod to forgive all of his sins, even the sins against John. Jesus thought of Herod, prayed for him, wanted to save him. And even though Herod hated Jesus and John and all of God's children, God remained patient with him. He still gave him so much time in this life, chance after chance and blessing after blessing, day after day. And this is what is so hard to bear. That God is gracious and merciful and loving even to our enemies. Now, God's patience isn't eternal, but His patience is long, much longer than we'd like many times. You see, we'd like God to immediately tear down everyone who commits one mistake or one error or one sin against us. Oftentimes you want God to smite them in an instant and not let them live any longer, but we don't know what we're asking for. If we ask for God to do this with others, then we're asking for him to do it with us as well. And if God were like this, then who could stand? Which of you would still be alive right now if God ended your life the moment you sinned against and deeply hurt someone else? Which of you could be here today if God only gave you one chance? If he was patient with you just once, who would be here? The church and the entire world would be empty. Because no one could survive this judgment. And he knows that and he doesn't want that. And yet, even though his patience will eventually come to an end... And even though he will one day punish the guilty, the unbelieving, and the impenitent to come to judge the living and the dead, he doesn't want to yet. He waits. He delays their punishment and gives them another day and is slow to punish their sin, not because they earned it, but because that is what God is like. So why is God so gracious and patient in this way? Because he wants nothing more than to forgive them all of their sins. He wants nothing more than for each and every one of his creatures to be crowned with eternal life, to spend every waking moment with him, to receive every ounce of blood that flowed out of his veins, every drop of sweat and tears from his body to make them his forever. This is not anything new. God has always been this patient and long-suffering. Uh, Listen to these scripture passages. Ezekiel 33 says this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And 1 Timothy 2 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
And that this is precisely the thing that we Christians must struggle with the most. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is God patient with them? Why does he give them chance after chance when they've blown it a thousand times before? Why am I suffering? I trust him. I love him. Why is this whole thing taking so long? This is what John struggles with. He's in prison. He sees the Lord Jesus be so kind and loving to sinners, even to John's enemy. While John is in jail facing certain death, it was them that Jesus was pursuing. Now, this may have troubled John, and he may have grown impatient with Christ and even wondered if he should wait for someone else to actually get something done. And he even asks, are you the one we are waiting for? According to the Lord's response back, yes, yes, John, this is the Christ. This is what he's like. This is the one of whom the prophets foretold, the one we've been waiting for all this time. This is love beyond all telling. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. This is the heart of God, that he really pursues and loves people beyond what John would expect, beyond what any of us could expect or imagine. This is who God really is. Jesus is God, the one true God, the only God who willingly, lovingly suffers for the sins of the entire world. This is God, the one who was laid in a manger only to be laid in a tomb. The one who became flesh and blood only to open up that flesh and spill all his blood for every human being in this world. This is the Christ, the one who did not refuse the crib or cross, the one who did not give up on dying for us when he saw us in our most wicked and scandalous sins, the one who was determined to give his dying breath for our forgiveness. This is the Christ. This is how deep and wide and long and high the love of God is for this entire fallen world. A love that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. This is what he's like. So Jesus says, blessed, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So don't you get offended at the long suffering and patient love of God. And don't you grow weary or faint or discouraged as you wait and endure the sins that others sin against you, no matter what you're suffering. Don't let his immense grace and mercy for fallen creatures dissuade you from trusting in him. God will make things all right. And he will vindicate you. But not yet. Soon, he will. But be patient for a little while longer. Soon he will save you from all of your own sins and the sins of others against you, no matter what opposition or strife you might face. He teaches you to face this pain and anguish with hope that it is coming to a certain and definite end. Don't get angry when you see the wicked prosper or when you see God patient with them. Just pray for them. 
Pray that they repent. Pray that God's patience for them is not in vain. And while you do, remember that God's love for others doesn't mean he doesn't love you. His patience in judging the world doesn't mean he's forgotten you. God knows your struggle against sin and your guilt and your sadness and even your impatience. He loves you. While God tarries his judgment upon sin, even those against you, put your trust in him, knowing that he will give you more days of joy than you've ever lived in sadness. So he's waited for you. And he's still patient with you. So this Advent, as you wait for Christ's final Advent, wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of those who prosper in the way. Say with David the psalmist, Lord, what else do I wait for? My hope is in you. Remember that the Lord is good to those who wait. And remember that none who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. Be patient in his patience and wait for the time that you won't have to wait ever again. And rejoice in the Lord always, knowing that this is the kind of God you have. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Listen to the words of this hymn. Sin's debt that fearful burden cannot his love erase. Your guilt the Lord will pardon and cover by his grace. He comes for you procuring the peace of sin forgiven, his children thus securing eternal life in heaven. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.